Good evening, everyone, and it is my great privilege to introduce Dr. Bill Takeshita, Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute. Uh, we're in, like Dr. Bill mentioned earlier, we're in for a great treat tonight. We have a great audience, and our topic is uh, is cortical visual impairment. So I'm going to, without further ado, I'll just hand it over to Dr. Bill. Well, thank you very, very much, Sue, and it's it's always a real pleasure to be able to speak to so many of you, and we have people from throughout the country here this evening, and I also have a, a really great treat for all of you that tonight we also have a guest speaker, and many of you have heard Dr. Christine Roman speak. She truly is one of the world's experts in the area of uh, neurological vision impairment, and uh, I believe that you're at... Are you at the University of Pittsburgh? Is that where you're at, or are you at a different uh, uh, university now? Uh, I was at the University of Pittsburgh, but I actually um, have left higher education. I'm working at the Western Pennsylvania Hospital. I work for the American Printing House for the Blind, and I'm doing um, a lot of consulting, including uh, a big project at the Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children. So you never know where I am. I'm all over <laughs> Hey, well, you know what? This is really, this is really a great treat that you happen to call in this evening, and oh, I, I couldn't be happier. But uh, tonight, uh, what we wanted to talk about is neurological vision impairment. And for many, many years, we have been seeing a change in the causes of vision impairment among children. In 1988, when we first started the children's program at the Center for the Partially Sighted, uh, the leading cause of vision impairment that we saw at that time happened to be retinopathy of prematurity, and number two was cataracts. But when we then looked at the statistics 20 years later and we did a retrospective study of studying all the patients we saw at the Center for the Partially Sighted, we found that 51%, 51% of all the children that we saw 18 years and younger had a primary diagnosis of neurological vision impairment. So the first thing that we want to talk about is what is neurological vision impairment? Now, I like to use this term neurological vision impairment because it does tend to paint a picture that often helps the parents and other professionals to understand that the primary the primary cause of vision impairment for that child, it happens to be related to abnormal functioning of the brain. Now, it's very important to remember that a person may have reduced vision because of abnormal processing of the brain, but that child could also have other types of problems with the eyes as well. In other words, it is possible that a child might have mild retinopathy of prematurity but they may have also neurological vision impairment. Another thing that we also like to do is we also like to remind people that underneath this classification of neurological vision impairment that there are many subclassifications and the most common type of subclassification underneath the general term neurological vision impairment is that there is what is called cortical vision impairment. Also, you'll see the abbreviation CVI. Now, at our center, cortical vision impairment represented 91% of the children who had neurological vision impairment. 91% of them had the diagnosis of cortical vision impairment. Now, with cortical vision impairment, this is, again, when the visual centers of the brain do not process visual information normally, and these children very often do have vision. They are not totally blind. The children with cortical vision impairment often will have better peripheral vision as compared to central vision, and as a result, these children or these babies and infants, very often they do not make very good eye contact but a lot of times they may look off to the side. It may even appear as though they're looking at your ear or your forehead or your mouth, but they don't necessarily look at your eyes. Some people have reported that the child with cortical vision impairment, their vision is similar to looking through Swiss cheese where there's 
areas of holes where the vision is clearer and there's other areas where their vision is worse. We also see that many children with CVI, they're more interested in looking at things that are moving and rotating and changing. One of the tools that we use when we examine children is something called the optokinetic nystagmus drum. It's a cylindrical drum with black and white stripes, and when you spin it, we often see that many kids with CVI, they become very, very aroused. They might turn their head very, very quickly to follow it with their head and their eyes, but if we use a toy, for example, it could be a very colorful toy, they may not look at it. Many kids with CVI, they like to look at lights. I know that James Jan, who's a, a, a doctor who has worked a lot with kids with neurological vision impairment, he found that about 30% of kids with CVI, they like to stare at lights. And we see this very often where kids like to stare at fluorescent lights or the parents say, when we go into the supermarket, they just love to look at the fluorescent lights. But there's also a percentage of children with CVI who are very sensitive to the light, and they have what's called photophobia. They are very, very sensitive to the light, and they don't like the light. Some children with CVI, they may be more interested in looking at patterns such as red and white or red and yellow as compared to other colors. So these are some of the things that we see with the children with CVI, and these are kids who often will respond quite well to a vision stimulation program, and we will talk about that more in, in a bit. Another type of cause uh, under the category of neurological vision impairment is cortical blindness. Now, cortical blindness in our study, where we studied, again, 20 years of children at the Center for the Parsi Sighted, it accounted for 9% of all the kids that we saw with neurological vision impairment. And these are children who are totally blind due to the fact that the visual centers of the brain does not process information normally, and these kids cannot see light. They cannot see your hand waving in front of their face. They do not see any type of visual image whatsoever. And so these are the kids that we do not observe that these children, their vision does not improve. Now, many of the children who have the diagnosis of cortical blindness this diagnosis is often made when the doctors have performed MRI studies where they can look at the visual center of the brain. But the majority of children who have the diagnosis of CVI, they do not usually have that type of MRI study. And one of the things that we often see is that CVI is sometimes a diagnosis of exclusion. When we as eye doctors look at the eyes and the eyes look healthy and the optic nerve that sends information from the eye to the brain looks healthy, but there is a history where we find that the child may have suffered from the lack of oxygen or there may have been an infection or there may have been inflammation or the child may have had merconium aspiration, uh, seizure disorders, uh, blood uh, brain hemorrhaging, these are some of the other types of things that we find are associated with CVI, and that's often how that diagnosis is, is made. Now, a third particular subcategory of neurological vision impairment is called delayed visual maturation. And in our study, we found that this accounted for about 3% of the children with neurological vision impairment. Now, in delayed visual maturation, this is when, again, the children at a very young age, they appear to be very, very low vision, if not totally blind for some of them. But what we do find is that their vision, week after week, month after month, it continues to improve. And for many of the children with delayed visual maturation, by the time that they're three years of age or 36 months, we find that their vision is very, very close to normal, if not normal. So that particular type of a child with delayed visual maturation, we find that these children do enjoy the visual stimulation activities, 
And we do feel that the visual stimulation is something that helps to accelerate the, the, the growth and the development of their vision. Now, when we think about all of these different forms of neurological vision impairment, it's very, very important to remember that this type of classification that we use to describe these three subtypes, number one, CVI, number two, cortical blindness, and number three, delayed visual maturation, this is not something that is universally used by all eye doctors throughout the United States or for the world for that matter. There are still many, many children who are referred to us by their eye doctors and they have a diagnosis of cortical blindness. And when the parents hear this term, cortical blindness, it's often a very, very difficult term as a diagnosis because when the parents hear blindness, they think that their child is, in fact, totally blind. And when they hear the term cortical, they often don't necessarily know what cortical refers to, you know. And as a result, many times when these kids come into our office and they tell us that their child is cortically blind and their child is totally blind, we will perform our examination and we find that the child does have vision and the child actually has cortical vision impairment. So the reason that I bring that up is that many children who do have cortical vision impairment are often diagnosed as having cortical blindness. And one of the reasons that this still occurs is that in a lot of the medical insurance billing codes, if you look at the ICD-10, you may then see that there is a diagnosis that says cortical blindness. So as part of their diagnostic codes that they're using for insurance billing, it may say cortical blindness, when in fact many of these kids do have cortical vision impairment. Now when we think about the children who do have a a neurological vision impairment, there's a few things that are really very strongly associated with this particular type of vision impairment. As I stated before, one of the things is we want to find out how was the child's birth? Were there many complications where the child was not breathing well? And if the child was not breathing well, that type of lack of oxygen or the hypoxia or anoxia, these are things that can affect the visual regions of the brain. Number two, It could also be that a child has suffered from a brain hemorrhage. It's not uncommon that premature children will suffer from a brain hemorrhage. And for these children, that particular type of brain hemorrhage can affect areas of the visual pathway. Number three, we also look to see if a child is born, has been born, before 32 weeks. If the gestational period has been before 32 weeks, there is a possibility that the child may also have retinopathy of prematurity, which is a problem there to the retina that we need to look at very carefully. But many children who are born premature may also have periventricular leukomalacia, and sometimes that will be abbreviated PVL. And this is a situation in which some of the white matter that's in a region of the brain around the ventricle This is something that can affect the the vision, but it also will usually affect the motor skills of the child. So many children with periventricular leukomalacia, in addition to the vision impairment, they often may have some significant problems with their motor skills. So they'll be very delayed in crawling and sitting and reaching and so on and so forth. So the point to all of this is that when these children have these types of neurological conditions, or they may also have seizures as well, these types of children really can have many, many problems. And that is what makes it very different in working with children with neurological vision impairment as compared to working with a isolated eye problem, such as a cataract or something as retinopathy of prematurity. When the child has neurological vision impairment, it can affect so many different aspects of the brain as well. 
We see many children may have an infection to the brain, meningitis or encephalitis, and this is something that causes the vision to be impaired, but it also affects other areas of the brain. And we know that two-thirds of the brain is involved in different aspects of vision. For example, there's one region of the brain that is going to be involved in the following types of eye movements where your child is going to follow your face as you're moving. There's other parts of the brain that's going to control how the eyes will shift from one place to another. There's another region of the brain that's going to be involved in the visual processing. Uh, Does a child understand how to place a square into a square hole? So when the child does have neurological vision impairment, it's quite common that we see that they have many different types of developmental delays. Now, one of the things that we do recommend for children with neurological vision impairment is that we do recommend a vision stimulation program. And here in Los Angeles, we tend to really emphasize that term vision stimulation as compared to vision therapy. Uh, The main reason for that is that vision therapy is a program that is generally administered by optometrists. And the vision therapy program is generally designed to treat strabismus or amblyopia. Now, strabismus is a situation in which one or both eyes are misaligned, where the eyes might be crossing or they may be turning outward. And optometrists who specialize in vision therapy, they use different exercises to straighten the eyes. Optometrists also use vision therapy to treat children who have amblyopia. And amblyopia is a condition in which the visual centers of the brain do not process detailed information maximally clearly because of the lack of use. When we see a child is born with one eye that is crossed or turned outward, that child usually will see double vision. And the brain, it doesn't like the double vision, so it will tend to shut off that individual eye. And as a result, the clarity of sight of that eye is very reduced. And this is when optometrists in vision therapy, they'll recommend patching and different types of activities to improve the acuity. So overall, the vision therapy program is usually designed to develop different types of visual motor skills for the eyeballs themselves. Whereas with visual stimulation, as we attempt to help children with cortical vision impairment and delayed visual maturation, we are really trying to make improved connections within the visual centers of the brain. Now, one of the things that I have found throughout the years of working with children with neurological vision impairment, we have found it is very, very important that the family members learn how to perform these visually stimulating activities. We also spend a lot of time to teach family how to make their home more visually stimulating. For example, we have seen some families where their home is so dark that any child, regardless of what their health may be, they would not be able to see well because the home is not lit well enough. So it's important to modify the home to make it visually stimulating and then to perform specific types of activities that would stimulate the development of vision. And we find that it is generally the first five years of life that are really very, very critical for that development of vision. At our center, as we have looked at the kids throughout the years, we find that about 35%, about 35% of the kids that we do see, that their vision makes significant gains. But I also want to also state that we have also seen that a large percentage of the kids that we have seen, many times their vision impairment is due to meningitis and encephalitis where there's some severe types of infection to the brain. And even though their vision has improved, 
they continue to have a lot of different types of problems because of their cognition. They're not able to problem solve quite as well as we would like, and it's because of the injury that they have suffered to the brain. But we see that with other children where they do not have a history of meningitis or encephalitis, and it may be because they had a transient spell where they didn't have enough oxygen, or it may have been that there was some pressure within the brain because of hydrocephalus. We find that many of these kids will develop higher levels of vision and they can do very, very well. But I want to make the point here that when children do have neurological vision impairment, when they have neurological vision impairment, it is not true. It is not true to state that by simply improving their vision that the child will be perfectly normal. This is something that many times parents will come to the center and they will say, well, I know that if we could fix my child's vision, everything will be perfect. She'll be able to talk perfectly. She'll be able to walk perfectly. Everything's going to be perfect. There will be no more seizures. That, that is not true. Now, one of who has really, really inspired me to continue to do work with vision stimulation and working with children with neurological vision impairment is, is on the phone with us tonight, and it's uh, uh, Dr. Christine Roman. And when I first heard her speak and I heard about the success she was having uh, with a lot of her children, uh, we adopted so many of the strategies that she had, and, and it has been something that has been very, very helpful with the kids that we work with uh, here in Los Angeles. So, uh, Dr. Roman, do you mind uh, sharing a little bit of your thoughts and philosophies on vision stimulation as to how you have administered it throughout the years for the kids in, in the Pittsburgh area? Uh, sure. Uh, I won't take up too much of your time for um, allowing me to have a couple minutes. Um, actually, uh, one of, I ha- we have a clinic. When I say we, my husband, who's a neonatologist, and I run a clinic called Pediatric View, where we see children from all over the country and actually all over the world who have CVI. And the, I think I think families come there mostly because they are looking for. Um, a systematic evaluation of their, their child's um, sort of status of visual impairment. So when that's where we use the CVI range to determine the degree of effective CVI on a 0 to 10 scale. The CVI range now has been found to have reliability and validity and strong psychometric properties through a, a study that was done at the University of Maryland. So that's a good thing for kids because it means that the... Um, the evaluation actually does measure what it's supposed to measure. But once we can determine where that level is, then um, we look at the uh, 10 characteristic behaviors, all 10 of the characteristics that really define CVI, and um, determine the level of each of those characteristics and then design a program to support the child to use their vision functionally in routines of their daily life um, with frequency so that vision makes sense for them. So there's a payoff for using your vision. And actually, we have found that there is no real correlation between what actually happened to your brain and your ability to improve your functional vision. So children with asphyxia versus PVL versus um, infection versus stroke versus intraventricular hemorrhage, they all seem to make progress. Um, at the same rate, the factor that seems to really matter is what we do. So in families who have really kind of found um, ways to get their educational team on board and the child um, is really um, encouraged to use their vision in ways that make sense. So, for example, um, if a child is beginning to use their vision and we can, you know, use... um, adapt their feeding materials, the stuff they use for mobility, the things that they use for fine motor activities, um, incorporate things that have to do with cognition 
teaching children how to identify salient features of images and so forth, throughout the day that we find that vision improves. We find that without a real program to address these characteristics at a very distinct level, that children sort of reach a certain level, about maybe four to five on the range out of ten, but they don't seem to get higher up. So we have really um, begun to really embrace the fact that it's not so important to think about what actually happened to your brain, though we want to know what that was, but rather to really assess carefully and place the program of intervention in place. I also would just like to say something as an educator about what I think as a difference between vision stimulation and vision intervention. It's a real detailed thing. I appreciated your your explanation of vision, vision stimulation. But when um, those of us, if there's anyone up they might remember that when we first started working with children who are visually impaired, we talked about vision kind of an end unto itself. You know, you'd ask a child to track a light or hit a ball with a bat or something, but we didn't know why we were doing that. In, in vision intervention, educationally-based interventions, we're really working toward a very distinct rationale, a goal that has to do with helping a child develop literacy, literacy skills, independent skills, mobility skills. So the child that would initially just look at light or um, a red shiny object or a yellow slinky, we understand that, that that beginning visual input is going to be used to um, carry over into things that have to do with vision plus function and then eventually hopefully identification of salient features and literacy. So it's a real, like, intentional way of creating a path toward feeding not just vision development, but hopefully cognition to the highest possible. You know, we never know when we first evaluate a child where that child will end up. You know, you can reach 8 or 9 or 7 or 6 on the CVI range and not necessarily be able to read or use words um, or speak or understand high-level concepts. But we do know that that amount of vision will allow you to access, you know, communication devices and social interactions and so forth that help you develop at a higher level. So, so we're always moving toward that highest degree of function that each child can achieve, not knowing initially what each child can achieve until they have access to their world. So, you know, a lot of children who are in wheelchairs don't really let us know what their cognitive potential is. It's only after they get access to information that we begin to see what that child really can provide. Now, that, that is really, really, really great. I, I like that a lot. Now, um, what about in, in the um, areas that, that you are are working, do you find that the schools, the public schools that are, are working with children who do have CVI, are the teachers for the visually impaired, are they uh, attending seminars to begin to do this type of uh, vision intervention as, as a more of an educational basis? You know, that's a very, very good you know question, and I think that it's a very important one. Um, you know, as you very well pointed out, CVI is really by far the leading cause of visual impairment in children. I always say, you know, if you want to know what the face of a child with visual impairment looks at looks like, look at the child with CVI because they are the face of pediatric visual impairment today. And yet, our training programs, you know, I worked in higher education for 17 years, and we're, we're really bound to teach, you know, graduate students bound to teach them what the CEC standards dictate, but they're not addressing CVI in a very appropriate way. So professors in vision are really still focusing on that child with cataracts and glaucoma and, you know, um, ROP and those things that are getting to be more and more rare. And so we have this great mismatch between this population of children who are really the children with visual impairment and the training to support those children. So that's why, you know, educators are really pursuing additional input 
um, and I really appreciate all the people on this call tonight who are including me, who are trying to, you know, to learn everything we can. Um, but what I will say is that parents are becoming more and more educated about what the child has a right to. And so it's very important that parents, you know, um, really pursue an educational path in which their child has a program designed specifically for the needs of their which you know are very different from a child who has ocular visual impairment. And it's a very, it's a really tricky thing because the training programs have not really caught up to the needs of this population, this exploding population of children with visual impairment. You know, my husband's a neonatologist and he is, his job is to help, you know, ensure the survivability of these children who have very fragile neurologic conditions, this is not going to go backward. It's only going to go forward. And so the population of is really expected to be the same or even increased. So anyway, so it's a real tricky thing. You know, I don't, I don't really understand why people come from all over the country to see me in Pittsburgh. And, and the only explanation I can come up with is that, you know, they're not really finding adequate ways to get their children evaluated in their home communities. So it speaks to me of the need for um, for the vision community, and I'm and I know I'm speaking to people on this call who are well aware of this. And obviously, you wouldn't be on this call if you weren't devoted to this cause. But but you know, we really, as a field, need to rise up on behalf of kids with CVI because they often are not getting a program designed for their specific needs. And, you know, the other thing is I think a lot of people think some of these children are too cognitively impaired to see. But Dr. Jan, as you mentioned, um, is really was one of the first people I talked to who said, no, no, you know, we don't know how cognitively impaired a child is until they have access to information. So that's part of our job. Now, at your uh, program, your, your, uh, would you call it the your institute? Is that what it's called? It's called Pediatric View. It's, okay. it's a program at Western Hospital in Pittsburgh, yes. Western Hospital in Pittsburgh. So at the Pediatric View, after you do the evaluations, um, who is the person who teaches the family the different types of activities that they should do during the vision intervention? So um, after the evaluation, I write a very detailed report. It's usually four, five, six, seven pages long. And it really details that it's like a plan. You know, let's try to support the child by doing this, 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 and this. And I also teach that the CVI range, once I complete the CVI range, it basically fits right into the child's IEP. And those things then um, hopefully drive that intervention. But I have no idea, frankly, when a, pa- when a parent gets this information in the mail after the assessment, I have no idea who really will carry this out. Sometimes sometimes it's the teacher of the visually impaired. Sometimes it's the parents themselves. Sometimes it's an OT, a PT. I mean, I can't, I've trained people across all disciplines, and I can't say that it's always the teacher of the visually impaired who makes it happen. Um, ideally, I hope it is, but it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, what is your response to some of the other eye care professionals, whether it's an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, when they say, well, uh, this child is blind because of brain damage and there's nothing you can do. Uh, How do you respond, or do you cite different types of articles and papers that you have written? I'm I'm looking for something that maybe a lot of the listeners tonight can also use when they're fighting for services for their child. Right. Well, my husband and I published something in... um the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness in 2010 that shows the results of data we had collected at Pediatric View that shows um, that it shows the results of improvement in the functional vision of children with CVI um, across a. It shows that basically um, no child who came to us, um, regardless of age, scored above three on the range. Um, a few children scored as high as five, but most of them scored round three. And that after about 3.7 years, um, 90, I think it was 97% of the children scored above seven. So,
so it isn't really linked to, you know, when doctors say, it, you know, just wait and see, there's nothing you can do, just wait and see, the data that we have um, published shows that's really not the case, that that it, it has everything to do with what you do. And when you, you know, really think about how plasticity in the brain works, the very, very early work of Hubel and Wiesel, the guys who won the Nobel Prize, addressed the fact that it's, it's really what you do that matters. It's the experiences you have. And if children with TBI sort of see the world as a kaleidoscope of, of meaningless pattern, color, you know, detail that makes no sense to them, then um, our job is to help sort that information into meaningful, simple, um, understandable chunks and then um, increase that as the child shows as they can. So it's been very frustrating, and I think that, you know, I will say really frankly that um, I think, oh, boy, this is being recorded, so should I really say this? <laughs> that um, that sometimes I think that eye doctors don't, you know, ophthalmologists specifically don't always recognize that just because they don't have an intervention program to offer, it doesn't mean there isn't one. And so really what most educators want is the diagnosis to be made and the referral to an appropriate program so we can do what we do with the child. But, you know, I see many children in our clinic who come for the first time at age 12, at age 15, at age 7, and people think they have autism or they think they have ADD, and really what they have is a perfect DVI profile and they haven't received the right educational interventions, and that must be so frustrating you know, to their parents. You know, that is, that is so enlightening, though, when you say that even kids who came to your clinic after the age of 12 and 13 that they made improvements because, you know, so much of I know what I learned when I was in school is that the vision would primarily develop during the first five to seven years, um, but you're finding something completely different, and it shows that parents uh, need to continue to do this type of intervention, uh, uh, even as kids are older. Right. And, you know, I um, I was confused by that, too. And then Gordon Dutton's work suggests, and I, I don't know exactly how he came up with this information, but he always talks about, um, you know, the ophthalmologist from Scotland, he talks about how um, visual plasticity goes on into adulthood. I just don't think we know enough about plasticity for sure to say exactly where it begins and ends. I'm doing some work with a neuroradiologist in Pittsburgh looking at, you know, images of children's brains relative to the scores on the CBI range. And it's really interesting. I mean, it, it just shows really significant changes in children's brains. Um, and it's not really linked to age, which is fascinating to me. It's more linked to what we do. Yeah, and we're seeing it also with adults. When we have adults in their 80s and they have suffered from a stroke and we see some very amazing changes that do happen with them where mm -hmm. they suffered that mm -hmm. damage and they recover different types of skills um, mm -hmm. even at that older age. So as you stated, it is that plasticity. Now, are you finding that the uh, United States government, are they very interested in CBI? Are they funding a lot of the studies that you you and your husband are doing? On Not uh, at all. No? Nope. Nope. In fact, I am working on an infant, um, a, a, a way to identify infants most at risk for CBI, and I have to, I'm working on uh, with a number of hospitals around the country to help me get preliminary data because I cannot get funding, nobody's interested. And so if I get preliminary data that says, you know, this is what we're finding in all these regional centers, maybe I can get funding. I, it's so interesting that you would ask that because I can't believe it's the leading cause of visual impairment in children, and yet it's, it's almost like an orphan cause, like you can't get people interested. It's very frustrating to me. You know, if there's ever a time that there happens to be any type of a legislation or any other type of movement, I, I, I would really appreciate you informing us so that we could get a lot of the people in the field to write letters because it really is a significant health 
problem, and it is a very, very uh, a financially expensive problem when we have the kids if they're if they're not really getting this type of treatment and they're not using their vision better to perform daily living skills. And uh, that's right. That's right. And really, the payoff is the more visual um, ability the child develops, the more independent they are, the less they cost the United States government in the long run. So it's just a win-win proposition. I'm going to a school tomorrow in Ohio to see a child that I've been following since his birth. This little boy had grade 4 intraventricular hemorrhages, bilateral. He was thought to have, you know, really, really significant brain injury. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that this little boy reads. He's five years old, and he reads really at or above his age level. And it was, and he he started out at about 0.5 on the range, and his mother is extremely gifted as an educator herself, and he's just shown amazing progress. Well, this is a child who's going to require much less from much less support from the government in the long run because he's going to be pretty independent, you know. So it's a really quite a payoff, and there aren't many kinds of visual impairment you can say this about. That that is amazing. He was a zero point five on the scale. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's really amazing. Yes, now, and he's not he's not the only child like this. I mean, we have lots of data of kids. We have lots of kids we've seen who are not, um, you know, not always able to walk and can't use their bodies normally. Who are using very complex communication systems and can read sight words. Some kids can read more fluently using the techniques we've, you know, developed to help support their their visual needs. So these are these are individuals. These are children who the payoff is huge for them, and the result to society is huge. You know. Now, Dr. Roman, what's your your uh, thoughts with respect to? How expensive is it? You know, when parents will say, well, how much money is this going to cost me to do this kind of intervention? Do I have to buy really expensive equipment? Um, I know that there's times that parents feel they need to buy a light box, and more recently a lot of parents are buying the iPad with these different applications, or we see other parents who are buying um, the little room, and they're Mm -hmm. using those types of things. But from your experience, what do you feel is the cost to uh, implement the the vision intervention program? It's not very much at all. So many of the materials I use are developed by the American Printing House for the Blind, which our students can get on federal quota, so there's no charge to the families. Schools are actually um, purchasing iPads for children for whom that's appropriate. It's you know the the, the interesting thing is. There's nothing magical, really, about these interventions. It's really about identifying the level of CVI, describing the kinds of supports the child needs to use their vision, and putting them in place. It's a, it's about the least expensive thing I can even think of. You know, most of the early materials that are used to help, you know, sort of support visual attention are things you can get from the dollar store. I mean, these are not, this is not a costly intervention. You know, that, that's what is so amazing. That's what we feel, too. You know, you could make these kinds of uh, visual stimulation toys at home, and you could find old fabrics and different types of toys at the dollar store. And, and using household things that child will use every day, and, and right. it is uh, right. vision stimulation. Right. Um, right. What, are you, what are you doing at the American Printing House? Are you writing a book for them, or... Is, do you have books available that our, our listeners can find at American Printing House? Well, the book that I wrote is from the American Foundation for the Blind. But the um, but I work for the American Printing House for the Blind, helping to be – I'm their CVI project leader. So I, um, I, I look at um, any products that are submitted for children with CVI, and we're trying – and anybody who's on the call who has an idea about a product, that will help support the functional vision of kids with CVI. Please submit your product idea to APH. And we're really just trying to make more things available um, for children with CVI um, through federal quota. So um, I'm using the, the kind of my background in CVI to help drive the development of more products a- across. So, for example, 
there are a few things out there now. There's also ways that you can use the light box. I'm developing an assessment kit. Um, there are other things that have been made available to help support kids with CVI. So that's something that is just kind of a sideline thing um, in support. You know, and, and again, it really, I think it's really important to recognize that the American Printing House for the Blind is really one of the oldest organizations that supports the development of materials for children with CDI, they have recognized that, I'm sorry, for children with visual impairment, they have recognized that, that CDI is a very critical um, mass of children who are visually impaired, and therefore we have to actually um, address materials that, that meet the needs of this population. So it's really, a, I mean, I really congratulate them for supporting mm -hmm. kids with CDI. Yeah, I think that's great, and I think also it's great to know that uh, parents, they could talk to the teacher for the visually impaired and share with them that a lot of the equipment they could use for visual intervention, uh, they could get that purchased perhaps through quota funds, and it, right. it will right. definitely be very, very helpful. Well, right, you guys, right, right. Unfortunately, we're almost running out of time, but I want to leave some time so that our audience can ask uh, you questions. Do you mind taking a couple of questions from the audience? Well, they may really prefer to ask you questions since this is your time. So I will. I'll take a. I'll take a back seat to you. Certainly, I don't want to, you know, take your time. Oh, but anybody you know, Dr. Roman, here? that's so nice of you to say. But uh, they 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 listen to me talk all the time. So um, let's see. We'll take a, a, about three questions. I think we have time for about three questions. And if you would unmute your phone by pressing star six, and if you have a question for Dr. Roman. Um, go ahead, and, and you could announce your name if you like, or you could just ask a question. Go ahead. Covers to cover the lights in the classroom if a child stares at the light. Yes, there yeah, there are light covers, yes, and I think they're important to use. I was wondering about the effectiveness of pull-out work on vision stimulation versus modifying the environment in the classroom. Um, do you want me to answer that? Please, uh-huh. Okay. Um, I think it's really important to integrate these interventions um, in the natural routines of the child. I do pull out with the child if I'm going to reassess the child, but I really have to analyze the environment, the environment where the child is, and figure out, you know, how do I adapt this, this, the things we use for feeding? How do I adapt the things for fine motor? How do I adapt their mobility or their PT activity? How do I create a visual target for them to help them know this is where they turn when they get to the corner? So to me, it's all about creating interventions that match the routines of the of the natural schedule, um, rather than thinking of it as a pull-out standalone therapy. I, I, I just I'll tell you what. When I was a young teacher of the visually impaired, I did that pull-out therapy, and I didn't really see changes in children. And I wish I could go back and redo that. But um, you know, when you know better, you do better. So I'm, um, it's really about making the things the child uses all day long visually accessible by creating simple backgrounds, using the color the child sees, adding movement, um, not talking while the child is trying to get in their best field, and so forth. Yeah, and I would I, I strongly agree with that. When we tell parents about the visual stimulation, they often think, oh, okay, how long do I do it? I said, you know, it really isn't like doing your aerobics after work every day, but throughout every single activity, as soon as your child wakes up to going into the bathroom, to eating breakfast, to going into the car, you could make that into a visually stimulating activity by making some modifications. So I, I think that that is probably the most effective way to uh, enhance the development of vision. Uh, two more Can questions? Can I ask one more quick question? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to ask, um, when we do the functional visual uh, assessment, are there any changes we should make for a child with CVI? Well, you know, I, um, I developed the CVI range. Um, which is a functional vision assessment designed specifically for the needs of children with CVI. That's the test that has reliability and validity that has been has stood up to some pretty heavy scrutiny. 
Um, and it does actually measure the degree of effective CBI, and I believe it is a substitute, not, you know, I don't do a traditional functional vision assessment for kids with CBI, but rather I substitute it with the CBI range because it addresses the CBI range, addresses the specific visual characteristics that define and frame CBI, and so um, I really think of it as parallel things. A child with ocular visual impairment, I do a traditional functional vision assessment. If they have CVI, I do a CVI range. And I feel really strongly about that because, I, I, it, for me, it all begins and ends with the CVI range. Until I know that level of CVI, I am really just picking a random intervention. And that doesn't really, um, that's too risky for the child. I really have to know that level. So that's what I do. Great. Thank you. Okay, one last question, please. Um, I'd like to know, um, is there any way to teach CVI children, like facial expressions or nonverbal movements? Um, well, facial, uh, so I think of the CVI characteristic of visual complexity as addressing that ventral strain vision or detailed vision. And um, many children with CVI cannot access the details of a face until they reach about seven on the range on the test that I do. And so you can't really teach a child to see something that they can't access, but rather um, there are ways that you can help a child recognize how a person's feeling or what they're, you know, how they should respond to the or to the socialist. But that's one of the great... Um, difficulty, individuals with CVI often cannot access the details of the face. So even today we saw a family from Tennessee, and this, this child was seven years old, and when his, um, when his mother would enter the room without speaking, he had no idea she was there. That's not, you know, he had no choice over that. That won't improve his visual capacity improves, and so that's why we want to offer him visual, open more connections, more wiring and firing develop in his brain so that eventually he'll have that skill as well as many others. You can't teach it as much as you can understand it and support it and help the child keep their vision functionally um, throughout the day. Oh, and I okay. think that also just goes back to what Dr. Roman was stating that you really do have to have a good understanding of what particular level of the CVI, because if a child doesn't have that detailed clarity to see facial expressions, uh, we can't expect the child to do that. Dr. Roman, this has really been extremely, extremely uh, uh, enjoyable evening for all of us, and we're all very, very honored and privileged to, that you are joining the call. So if you do want to contact Dr. Roman, it's C, letter C as in Christine, Roman, at cviresources.com. And if you want to listen to this again, it will be at the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org. And also we'd like to thank uh, Mr. Joe Yurka and Ayers LA, uh, www.airsaersla.org, where you can also listen to this podcast as well as many others that we have done. So we hope to see you next month. Uh, next month, we will be having Dr. Mark Borchert join me as we talk about optic nerve hypoplasia. So, uh, Sue, uh, any other comments there as we close up? No, I just, it just was a great call, and we want to thank both of you, uh, Dr. Roman and Dr. Bill, of course, for all your great expertise and wisdom. Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, so everybody, we'll see you next month, we hope, and have a great evening. And, again, thank you very much, Dr. Roman. Thank you.